This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning and welcome to Ringgit and Cents, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kunderson. Should I buy and hold index funds for the long term or actively trade to beat the market? That's the essential debate between active and passive investing. While active investors believe that it is possible to outperform the market, proponents of passive investing say that they are more likely to lose in the long term than gain if you're trying to do so. So to get a better lay of the land here and take a look at the data, I'm speaking with Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research with Morningstar Research. Such services. Uh, ben, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. So Ben, before we get into the performance and the data, let's get a lay of the land. What do we typically mean when we talk about active funds and passive funds? Well, active and passive, actually, it's not easy to define as, as you think it might be at, at first blush. At first blush, it seems like it would be very black and white. The reality of the matter is that there are extremes of black and white, and there are countless shades of gray that exist in between. So at the one extreme, you have pure passive, total stock market index funds, for example, that own as many stocks as they can from a specific market, be it the global market, be it the Malaysia market, be it the US market, and they weight those stocks according to their market capitalization. So they're really not taking a view. They're just trying to own the entirety of a given equity market, own each of those securities and weight them according to their size, their market capitalization. So I would say at one extreme, that's purely passive. At the other extreme, you have discretionary active management. So you might have an active manager that has a co-portfolio manager, a team of analysts, they're going out there, they're trying to understand individual industries, individual companies, and they're building a basket of stocks, say 20 or 30 stocks, a very con concentrated, high conviction portfolio. They're making buy, sell, and hold decisions each and every day. When do they come into the office? And what exists in the middle ground is all these different shades of gray. So inching from passive to active, you actually have index funds that sort of embed certain active decisions or have active strategies that focus on, say, dividend paying equities as opposed to owning the whole market. On the active side of things, you might have managers that use quantitative signals that look an awful lot like an index methodology. So you know, the reality is that the debate between active and passive is not as cut and dried, not as black and white as it might first seem. But for our purposes, we think of passive funds as being any fund that tracks an index, irrespective of what that index might be. And an active fund that has any degree of ongoing discretion that allows the manager to move the portfolio away from a relevant index. Right. So a great example would be the S&P 500 and any index fund that tracks the S&P 500 is, a, is an example of a passive fund, right? So whatever's in that portfolio would mimic the S&P 500 uh, and its revisions on a semi-annual basis. Um, maybe, uh, Ben, could you give us some context here in terms of the size that we're talking about? How big are active and passive funds in terms of the AUMs we're looking at? Well, if you step out and look at the world from afar, the global funds market, so this is all funds available to investors all over the world, at the end of April of this year, collectively held 51.4 trillion US wow. in investors' <laughs> assets. So that's a lot of money. And within that 51.4 trillion, 
$36.3 trillion was invested in actively managed funds, so just over 70% of the total. $15.1 trillion was invested in index funds, so nearly 30% of the total. Now, to give you a bit of context and a sense of the direction of travel, passive fund share, so index tracking fund share, was 13% just 10 years ago. So over the course of the past decade, index funds' global market share of the global funds industry has more than doubled. Are we expecting that to increase over time? Is is that the trajectory that uh, you're seeing on your side? It's absolutely the trajectory we're seeing. I I would expect it will continue to increase, albeit in all likelihood at a slower rate going forward, because in many major markets, uh, including the U.S. market, what you see in the case of, of U.S. domiciled stock funds, for example, they now account for the majority of U.S. stock fund assets. So actually actively managed U.S. stock funds are are now in the minority for the first time ever in the U.S. market. So inevitably, as market shares across many major markets um, reach certain key thresholds, key milestones, I think the rate of increase will, will slow. But I I think the trend is clear, which is that passive funds are growing their market shares in virtually every corner of the world. As we see passive investing and the fund sizes grow, are there any risks that you're watching in terms? Because, you know, we often hear, uh, you know, especially I think it was the end of last year, the headlines coming up about passive investing bubble and things like that. Are there any risks on this uh, front to keep an eye on? I think there could very well be risks. I I think the risks that there are are a long ways off when you think about um, what really matters in markets. And what really matters in markets is efficient price setting, that prices have to to reflect fundamentals. Prices have to incorporate new information efficiently. Prices have to direct capital to where capital needs to go at the end of the day. That's why we have global capital markets. Now, where prices are set is is at the margin. It's the marginal trade. So while passive fund share of assets and managed fund assets has grown over time, what you see is that passive fund share of actual trading volumes still remains very tiny. So globally, anywhere between 5 and 10% of actual trading volume in individual stocks is driven by passive funds. So the majority of price discovery activity, which informs capital formation, is is really taking place among active traders, people who have a view, who have an opinion, who have done some degree of fundamental analysis, unless, of course, you're a Redditor that's day trading meme stocks these days, which, you know, that's an entirely separate conversation. But yeah, so I've, I'm I'm not as yet concerned about this sort of tail wags dog scenario whereby passive funds, for whatever reason, are causing you know a risk to you know, the function of of capital markets and their key objective function. Now there are other risks I think that are also important to keep in mind, specifically as it pertains to common ownership and the fact that there are a small handful of large global firms like BlackRock in Vanguard and State Street that now own very large stakes and a very large number of public firms and have real clout with those firms' managements and ultimately are the ones that are voting shares on behalf of investors in their funds. Now that, I think, 
you know, is, is a potential meaningful risk. It's a very tremendous responsibility that these firms bear that to date they've been exercising with discretion. They've been exercising to the good of their fund shareholders. But again, with great power, with you know, trillions of dollars of assets <laughs> comes great responsibility. So that's, that's something worth keeping an eye on and certainly something that Morningstar and my colleague Jackie Cook in particular keep a very close eye on is just how good of stewards are or these firms of their fund shareholders' capital. Actually, that's a particularly interesting point because I think it was last week or the week before that we saw uh, Engine One kind of rally together shareholders of Exxon to put in some new board members and they, they rallied together State Street, uh, Vanguard and BlackRock who are massive shareholders. I think they held about 20% of Exxon together or thereabouts. Uh, so that's, I guess, an interesting and a great, uh, I guess, contextual point that you've provided us there. Um, the other one, of course, is being price discovery. Price discovery is driven by trading as opposed to holding um, the stocks at hand. Um, before we move on, Ben, do you have any data about Malaysian funds in terms of the size and AUMs? Yeah, so if you look specifically at, at Malaysian domicile funds, those funds collectively held just shy of $73 billion US as of the end of April. Uh, the overwhelming majority, so 99.3% of that, was invested in active funds. Just over 500 million US, so less than 1%, was invested in index funds. And what we've seen is that over the past 10 years, uh, index fund shares of, of the local market has actually been cut in half. So it was 1.4% if you were to go back 10 years ago, fast forward to the end of, of April of this year, uh, and it was half that, just 0.7%. That is fascinating. So it's a reversal of the trend that we're seeing on a global level, really. Uh, but I Absolutely. guess, I guess, but also with that in mind, um, it doesn't. This doesn't take into consideration how Malaysians are investing overseas, right? We could be investing in overseas ETFs as opposed to homegrown e uh, index funds, which aren't that maybe don't give us that much variety. Uh, one way of looking at that, anyway. Um, ben, before we go into a few messages, uh, when we look at funds, any fund for that matter, whether passive or active. There are always important things to pay attention to and key details to watch out for. So when we look at the fund fact sheet, what should we be paying attention to? I think when you look at the fund fact sheet, which you should realize first and foremost is some of the most important things you need to know about a fund before investing are not going to be featured on that fact sheet. And those things have everything to do with the people who are managing those funds, their level of experience, their team structure, their responsibilities, their level of training, their credentials, their prior experience, um, subject matter expertise, how they work together in their process. So people in process are two of the key pillars that underpin our Morningstar analyst ratings. These are ratings that we assign to strategies globally that are an assessment, a summary opinion of investment merit. And it's very rare that you find any good information on a fund fact sheet that helps you understand who's managing the fund and, and how they're managing it. Now, if there are pieces of information on the fact sheet that I think investors pay attention to, it's oftentimes performance, which I would say is, is probably the wrong thing to be looking at because as we all know, past is, <laughs> is no guarantee of what's going to happen in the future. And if there's one piece of information on the fact sheet that I think investors under under underemphasize 
it's the last all important pillar in, in our ratings analysis, which is price, the fees that they're actually paying for those funds, which are an all important predictor, if you look at the data, of their odds of future success with that fund. Fascinating stuff, Ben. And we're going to get into how fees factor into performance, as well as your take on which does better based on the data, passive or active investing in just a little bit. I've been speaking with Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research with Morningstar Research Services, and you've been listening to Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanison. This morning, I'm speaking with Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research with Morningstar Research Services, and we're talking about active versus passive investing. So Ben, before we took a little break there, uh, you ended by talking about the most important thing to take a look on the fun fact sheet is fees. So how do fees factor into performance based on the data you have? Well, it's simple subtraction. Fees are taken off the top. They're subtracted from investors' total returns. And ultimately, if you think about it from the point of view of a fund manager, it's the hole that the fund manager starts in. And they have to dig themselves out of that hole just to match the market and do even more still to be able to beat the market. So ideally, you want to align yourself with a fund manager that is going to put themselves in as shallow a hole as possible to have that bar be as low as possible, that fee hurdle, because that is going to improve their odds of not just matching the market's performance, but doing better than market performance, which is ultimately why investors tend to sign up for a discretionary active fund manager. And what we see pan out in the data when we look at this phenomenon in in the US funds marketplace is that almost uniformly, the lowest cost funds in a given Morningstar category have better odds of surviving and outperforming their average indexed peer than the highest cost funds from that same category. And it's just the basic math. It's just basic subtraction. The more you subtract from your return to the get-go at the get-go in the form of fees, the more you're going to have to add back. And it's really difficult over long periods of time for active managers to add value above and beyond what an investor can get from an inexpensive diversified index fund. At the end of the day, when we take a look at something like the S&P 500 index, it performs on a, I think, between 8 and 10% over the last 40 years based on the data we have, if you don't include dividends. Um, so an active manager who wants to beat that would have to get 14% in realistic terms because you've got maybe a one and a half, two percent fee on top of that. So these are all the things, I guess, that, that come together in this environment. Um, you, I know earlier you said that you know past performance isn't uh, the best thing to look at uh, when you look at the fun fact sheet because historical performance isn't a guarantee of future performance. Um, but do you think it has a role in helping us make our decisions about fun, uh, the funds we choose? It absolutely does. So I don't want to to unduly discount the importance of of performance. I think if if performance plays an an important role in investors' due diligence process, it's as a check on the investment team's Mm. process. So listening to how a particular manager or team describes their process and say, they go out and they look for defensive names. So they want to add value, but they want to add value by mitigating investors' risk to the downside. So we're going to look at that team's performance through different periods like you know, Q1 of 2020, for example. When the markets drew down, did that really pan out? Did they outperform the market 
on the downside, did they have a bit of a cushion relative to a relevant index during that particular period? So performance, again, is, is an all-important check on fund managers' process. And when you can think of those two in, in kind of parallel path and use performance as a sanity check on the manager's description of process and have confidence that they're executing that process faithfully, that gives us greater faith in, in the team's ability to deliver in the future as well. So, Ben, the big question with all that in mind then is based on the data, um, which does better over the long term, passive or active investing? The short answer to that question is that it really depends. Mm. And it depends along a, a, a number of different factors. So one of the vectors is the, the category in question. So if you look at the research we've done in our, our U.S. active passive barometer, which looks at the performance of actively managed funds versus their indexed peers, what you see is that the U.S. equity categories are particularly difficult for active managers, that a tiny minority of active managers over long time periods have both survived and outperformed their typical index peer. Now, investors can improve their odds of finding a winning manager by, as I mentioned before, selecting from the lowest cost funds within a particular category, but the odds still aren't all that great. Now, there are other categories where discretionary managers have tended to fare better. So looking at it from the perspective of a US investor, there are certain developed international categories where a larger percentage of active managers have outperformed their average index peer over a long period of time. Uh, global emerging markets is another category as is fixed income. Now, in none of these cases, especially over 10 and 15 and 20 year horizons has the majority both lived and outperformed but the odds are better. So investors really should pick their spots, understand which categories, which markets present better odds for discretionary managers and focus on fees. Because again, we know just that simple subtraction exercise of taking the fee off the top means that the less we're taking off the top, the greater the probability is that that manager is going to give us something that looks like market performance and better. Ben, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about why active managers do better overseas in comparison to domestic equity funds in the U.S. Is there, uh, is there anything you have uh, on this? Yeah, there are a variety of different qualitative factors that I, I think you can take into account. Um, you know, some of it just has to do with the, the degree of competition among investors in a given market. So if, if you look at the U.S. market, for example, it's just so widely followed their investors, large, small, and everywhere in between that every day are processing, you know, every piece of information you could possibly want to know about a given name and more. Um, you know, there, there's just so much competition. You know, the professionalization of asset management in the US too has gotten to the point where retail participation, individual investors represent a, a much smaller portion the global investor base uh, at, at this point. And if you go to the other extreme and look at a market like China, uh, what you see is that the professionalization of asset management is nowhere nearly as far along as it is in the US. There's still a very active and very highly participative retail investment audience there. And what you see is, is actually the success rates among active managers uh, in China are almost the mirror image of what you see in the U.S., whereby the majority of active managers in China have actually 
generally manage to outperform the relevant indexed peers. Index funds actually have a hard time surviving because no one wants to settle for index-like performance, given that active managers have, have done so well. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with the fact that the competition is very different. You've got a small but growing base of highly professional, well-trained professional managers managing funds, you know, squaring off against a, an army of retail investors who might be you know, trading based on you know, what they think about the ticker symbol or a tip they got from you know, their friend next door. So um, you know, those informational asymmetries are, are still, I think, much larger and easier to exploit in a market like the Chinese market, where as you know, they've all but disappeared in a market like the US market. So there's qualitative factors. There's also just factors that have to do with the makeup of the benchmarks that underpin index funds. Some of these benchmarks have certain biases, certain concentrations that may make it easier for active managers to add value around the margins. So if you look at a benchmark like the MSCI Emerging Markets Index, for example, which now, depending on the day, has got anywhere between 30 and 40% of its portfolio invested in Chinese equities, just by virtue of being either relatively underweight China or overweight China, uh, you know, managers have the ability to add value um, you know, somewhat more easily than they might in other markets, again, like the U.S. market, just given the makeup of the indexes. Right. Uh, and let's take a look at Malaysia, based, uh, following all of that. Do you have any data in terms of the active versus passive fund performance and survivorship? Because right now we've taken a look mostly at the U.S. or international markets. But anything on Malaysia? Yeah, so I do. I, I was able to look into our, our database and pull together data for Malaysia domiciled equity funds. Um, and I was able to look back over the course of the five years through the end of this May and the 10 year period as well. So if you look back five years ago, there were 309 unique Malaysia domiciled stock funds in Morningstar's database. So over the next five years, what you saw was that 41 of those funds closed. So that was 13% of, of the beginning uh, 309. 158 survived and underperformed their Morningstar category index. So that's 51%. 110 of them survived and outperformed their Morningstar category index. So 36% were what we would call a success. They lived and they outperformed. So that's one in three for, for your odds if you look at the five-year period. Now, the further you go back, and, and this is a pattern we've seen in the US, it's a pattern we've seen in the European funds market as well, those odds start to go down a bit. So looking back over the 10 years through May of 2021, 30% of the funds that were around at the beginning of the period closed. Again, these are Malaysian domiciled stock funds. And just 25% both survived and outperformed. So your odds went from one in three to one in four going back another five years. So that's that's worse than a coin flip. Again, there are <laughs> things you can do to improve your odds, uh, you know, focusing on fees. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't paint a pretty picture for discretionary active managers. Uh, ben, was that data based net off fees? 
So this is net of fees data. That's correct. So all of those returns were, were net of fees. A key thing to keep in mind is that, as you've noted before, not all funds survive. So then how does a fund die? Um, the reason funds die more often than not is because they haven't performed well. Um, and if they haven't performed well, they haven't captured investors' attention. And if they haven't gotten investors' attention, they haven't gotten any of their assets. So it, it becomes, you know, just kind of this compounding issue of, of underperformance leading to a lack of interest, leading to just a lack of, of economic viability for that fund and, and for the fund manager, even in, in some cases. So, um, you know, when you look at you know, the, the funds graveyard, what you see is that when, when dead funds were around, they weren't, you know, performing particularly well, the overwhelming majority were failing to, to do anything better than what an investor could have gotten from a broadly diversified index fund. Ben, on that note, do you have any data as to the typical survivorship rate between U.S. active and passive funds? Yeah, so what you see, generally speaking, is, is a big differentiating factor uh, between active and passive funds is, is exactly that, is the survivorship rate. So active funds tend to, to die at a much higher rate than index funds. And what you see across both active and index funds in the U.S. market is that that uh, you know, sort of attrition rate, the, the death rate tends to be highest among the highest cost funds. And indeed, if you look back among even index funds going back 15 and 20 years, most of the highest cost index funds that were around two decades ago are no longer around today. And I would argue it's precisely because they were charging too much for what they were ultimately delivering to investors. And lastly, Ben, let's end on this note then. Um, from a segmental or even sectoral perspective, uh, were there active funds, uh, whether in the U.S. or outside the U.S., uh, in particular sectors that did better in the long term? Well, better in, in sort of just average terms, um, it, it really depends on uh, the look-back period in question. But certainly if you go back 15, 20 years, there's no category that, that we've seen in, in the U.S. There may be one or two that we've looked at in Europe where the majority of active funds outperformed their average indexed peers. Off the top of my head, I think U.K. mid-caps might be a, a unique market in, in that you know, many active funds have, have, have outperformed their average passive peer over time. But it, again, I think there are a number of different things that investors can do to improve their odds, picking their spots, picking their sectors, focusing on fees or, or the two most important ones among them. Also understanding who they're partnering with, who is the fund sponsor, what is the parent firm, which is another important P or pillar in our own uh, due diligence process. You wanna understand the degree to which you know, fund firms are, are really in it for investors and in it for the long haul and delivering sensible portfolios and pricing them fairly uh, because you're, you're partnering with these firms at the end of the day. You're entrusting them with your hard-earned assets. You're expecting them to help you grow those assets over a long period of time. So again, picking your spots, focusing on price, focusing on a solid parent. I think these are things that investors can do to boost their odds, uh, boost their base rates when it comes to picking winning managers. And if you don't want to do all that work, a broadly diversified low-cost index fund 
is going to do a lot of heavy lifting for you and and save you a lot of pain and suffering probably <laughs> over the long term about having to worry about all of these things. And on that note, I think that's a great way to end this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I've been speaking with Ben Johnson, Director of Global ETF Research with Morningstar Research Services. And you've been listening to Ring It In Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kunnison with BFM 89.9. Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.